0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Mabel. How's it going, Rachel? Hey, it's going great,
1: Chris. How are you?
0: Oh, Rachel, today I'm a little bit exhausted because you're not going to believe what I did today. Today I spent the day, or we're recording in the afternoon, but I spent all day presenting to approximately 85 speech-language pathologists. I was sort of the, the, the lead presenter, but our, it was our, our whole uh, specialized instructional facilitator for our assistive technology team. Uh, we had put together presentations, and uh, today was the first day we're kicking off this huge initiative. I don't want to go too deep into the initiative because uh I'm thinking I might try and have uh, my supervisor on and uh, do a whole interview with her about the initiative. But today I presented to a, like I said, a room full of anxious, eager speech-language pathologists all about specifically aac um, we started out with uh, a whole section about pre- presuming potential and uh, believing in the students we had them uh, look at a padlet and kind of come up with different barriers and challenges that uh, that are facing them and students learning aac and it was just this great great experience lots of interaction a lot of enthusiasm about the initiative we're doing lots of training this year on AAC, specifically around partner augmented input, also known as aided language stimulation, also known as modeling, also known as the communication partner doing more uh, with the AAC device than necessarily the student is. And so this was, it was just a really exciting day for me. So I'm, I might be a little bit tired, but I was completely jazzed all day.
1: I love it. I love it. I I think it's funny. How many how many coined phrases are there for modeling? I think you hit. Did you hit all of them, or are there more? Because there's a well, lot. I think
0: I see aided language stimulation and partner augmented input. But then there's also aided language input. Yes, so I was going to say that one. Mix those two together. But yeah, that was one of the points that we made during the training: is that um we had talked prior to the training and should we try and just call it one thing like partner augmented input and just use that consistently and we said yes we should but when we tie in all the research research uses different things like well this is aided language stimulation not partner augmented input no it's the same thing so we really we decided you know instead of just uh, using one term we would educate people about all the terms you know you could use all these different terms but it really means us using the device as much as, if not more than, the person we're trying to teach the device.
1: Yeah, I know. I actually just got off a coaching call with an ABA team, and that's what I was talking about. It's just so interesting because I, I, I'm sure you can relate to this, Chris. When you teach so much about the same things, they just feel so second nature to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, like it feels like I'm teaching things that everybody already knows but everybody doesn't already know them. I just know them so well that <laughs> it feels like everybody else knows them. Um, I feel like I say the same things oftentimes uh, over and over again, but it's important.
0: Yes, yes, oh, I, I know exactly what you mean. I feel like, uh, I mean, how many times do I tell people about, let's say, core vocabulary? Like, doesn't? I mean, everyone must know this by now. And it feels like, so this is really gonna date myself, but it feels like a broken record, you know, like repeating, repeating, repeating. For kids out there listening, there used to be these things called record players, and you put this, this vinyl disc on it, and when it would break, it would skip, and it would just repeat over and over and over again. I feel like I have to explain that now. You know?
1: Yeah, like the cassette tapes. Remember when the, the, the tape would come out of the cassette tape, and then you'd have to take your finger and go like this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's funny you say that, because um, uh, Margaret, my daughter, who was uh, on a previous podcast episode... Uh, her and I were walking through an antique store just recently. Like we had, we were meeting mom and brother for for dinner and we were early. So we're like, Oh, let's walk over here. We went to an antique store and she saw a rack of cassette tapes and she's like, dad, what are these? And I was like, Oh my goodness. You won't actually use. I was like, remember guardians of the galaxy when they have she's like oh right that's those things like right so if you haven't seen that movie cassette tapes are in that movie and star lord uses them and it's like yes that's a throwback to uh this that's how i can tie it into her background knowledge right is let me teach you what cassette tapes were through your experience with star lord and guardians of the galaxy
1: that's too funny i like i remember waiting i used to have to wait For my favorite song, like now we're so used to getting things on demand instantaneously. If I want to, if I have a new song that came out that I want to listen to, I just go on the internet and 10 seconds later, I'm listening to it. But when I remember I used to wait for my favorite songs to come on and I would run to the radio that also had my cassette player and I would hit record and I would record (laughs) it off the radio so that I could listen to it when I wanted to.
0: (laughs) Yes, I did that too. Oh my gosh. I I might still have some of those tapes someplace buried in in a drawer someplace.
1: Oh, I love it! I love it. Well, it sounds like you're you're tired. I'm tired too, Chris. I had a big week last week. Yeah, what happened? Last week we had a video shoot for uh, my business. So, of course, I have a practice here in Los Angeles, but I also have an online business, and we create video content for parents and practitioners. Um, you know, training resources, all these things, all the things. And so, we had a big video shoot because my the guy who does video stuff for me is going to be not available. Um, He's going to be out of town for like six to eight months shooting all over, all over the world. And so he contacted me and was like, do you want to do a shoot before I leave? Because I'm, I'm able to edit it from other places, but obviously I need to be in the same room with you in order to shoot it. So we, we had a big day. It was like four hours. Um, It's always so much going into those types of shoots because I have to figure out all these great things that I want to say and share and say it in a concise way And so practice what I'm going to say so that when the camera's rolling, I don't totally mess it all up. Um, So yeah, it was, it it ended up being really amazing. Um, I ended up doing some, we did some shooting of some telepractice. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who is in New York and she has adopted a, a little boy from China who had a cleft lip and cleft palate. It was repaired last September, but his speech is highly unintelligible. He's three years old now. Of course, I started hearing her talk about this this adoption and cleft palate and all these things, and I'm thinking, like, the back of my head. At the time, he was two, and I'm thinking, like, we need to start AAC like yesterday. And so I started educating her and advocating for AAC. She ended up getting it evaluation, Um, and now she's waiting on the the device. It's touch chat is the one that um, they decided on, and I'm really excited. I can't wait till they get it because I've been coaching her like across from across the country. I'm obviously in LA. She's in New York. And I've been telling her, you know, she'll send me videos and I'm like, oh, like next time, like see how he was trying to tell you, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so it was really cool. So she was so nice. She hopped on, um, so for some of the shoot, um, and we were able to kind of do telepractice and get it on film. So it was, it was really good. It ended up turning out amazing. And I'm excited, you know, we have all the the raw footage now, but I'm really excited about the process of putting it all together. That's the most fun for me.
0: Do you find when you were doing the the, the coaching remotely, um, does, so to the child's there and she's playing or working with the child and you're, like you said, coaching. So you're saying like posing questions that go on like, oh, um, try it. what would you think would happen if you waited a little bit longer? Or um, what would happen if you tried to use this word on top of the word you just used? Like that kind of stuff?
1: So I do both. And I think with practitioners, it's easier to do in real-time coaching like that. Um, where you know ABA is having a session and they open the computer and I'm right there coaching alongside of them. Um, when it comes to parents, I find what's easier and I think a little bit more effective is watching videos back. And so having them take videos of them, you know, working on communication at dinner time and working on communication during bath time and all of these routines, and then watching it back and being able to, you know, pause the video and say, you know, you see here, like this was a perfect opportunity instead of, you know, jumping in and asking a question, you should have just, you know, maybe led with a comment. Um, and so anyway, that's kind of been my experience, but she, she's so funny. She's been like sending me all these videos of, you know, all the things, all the different services. And it's just been really nice, uh, being able to, to see from so far away and be able to help too. I feel like I've really been able to help her. So um, I'm excited I actually want, once she like, Gets the device, starts using it, all these things. I'm like, you're coming on the podcast. You're coming on the podcast yeah. as like a parent, a parent perspective.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So let me ask you more about the shoot. So um, do you have a topic in mind when you are scheduling the shoot? Like like you said, like video telepractice, you know?
1: Yeah, so we, we did a combination of a few different things. Um, we're kind of building out my website now to better educate about telepractice, because I think it's an area that most people don't know about, understand, buy into, and it can be quite effective, especially for families that are in areas that don't have access to any speech language pathologist, let alone someone who, you know, specializes in technology. And so half of the shoot was kind of like, okay, what are some things that we can talk about that can help kind of support the idea of telepractice and educate? And then, of course, the other part was just like fun stuff that I wanted to talk about when it comes to AAC. So we were talking about the importance of pausing. Um, We have a video I'm really excited about. It's how a child won't stop talking when you use AAC, but we've cited research. So it's literally like we're going to show research, like three cited research studies that really show it because I feel like that's one of the biggest things I get pushback on and it's one of the things where you're in AAC for the SLP, that Facebook group, and I feel like there's always somebody like, can somebody point me to the research that shows that using a device for communication won't prevent verbal communication? And so I'm like, I'll make that video.
0: <laughs> wait, so the research is uh, is about that specific point? Yes. And that's what the video is about?
1: Yes. It's me talking about that and how you know we can't use that as a reason to wait or to be nervous about technology. We know that a lot of times verbal speech increases when we use technology. And that's been my clinical experience. And I said that on the video.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's funny. It's funny. You you just recorded a video. And I just said that live today when I was walking around with all the speech therapists. Uh, We brought up the definition of AAC. And the first A is augmentative, right? And what it says right next to the definition of augmentative is To support someone who has verbal speech, right? So, that whole myth, again, busting down the myths, and that's exactly what I said when we were saying this is a huge myth that uh, how often do you hear, well, this kid's verbal, so they don't need AAC? It says right there, that's what the A, that's what the first A is about. It's all about helping people who already have speech, they just need it to be clarified or supplemented in some way. Uh, And so, that's what we talked about. And and again, we went around and we asked for like inspirational stories and you know many therapists had said you know well yeah we started with AAC and then we gave it back because eventually they didn't need it anymore and it's like yes exactly exactly they became so verbal and the the AAC just helped them get there faster
1: exactly and the other the other videos that i made were basically talking about how we need to support language as a child's speech sounds develop. Because oftentimes that's what's happening, right? Is there's severe articulation delay or phonological things or motor, motor planning things going on speech-wise. And so children are then limited by what they can say verbally, even though they might have tons of other things to say and lots of other opportunities to practice if we give them some type of augmentative communication. But if we're just relying on what they can say... It's so limiting. And then by the time their speech sounds actually do come in, think about how language delayed they become.
0: Yeah, so just do it.
1: Don't wait. That was the other thing. I was talking about how you should start it early. I use the language visual supports instead of AAC because my, and I don't know how you feel about this, Chris, and I don't know how much much experience you have with like early intervention populations, but early intervention moms and dads and, you know, families don't want to talk about AAC. (laughs) They don't want to hear about it. They're like, they're fresh into speech therapy. So they're like, you know, when you start talking about, yeah, we can use some type of device. It's like a hard no. Oftentimes that's my experience at least. And so what I like to do is I like to kind of ease my way in with the AAC piece by talking about visual supports and how important visual supports are and how you can start incorporating visual supports into everything that you're doing. And it's super simple. You know, your child is having a hard time, you know, they're not, they're, they're not saying words, take a picture of all the snacks, foods that, you know, are in the fridge and that they could ask for and start representing language in a visual way. And that I find oftentimes alleviates some of the fear that parents have, because sometimes like, if you start talking about it too soon, it's just like parents shut down and then like, they're like, see ya, like, you're not on board with what we need here. We need somebody to teach our kid how to talk. <laughs> right. And I'm like, listen, right. that is what I'm trying to do. But I'm also thinking about overall communication, not just talking. So anyway, but I, I have a video all about how beneficial visual supports can be and how you need to start incorporating them early so that children start having a way to communicate, decrease frustration as their speech sounds develop.
0: You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that... Uh parents can relate to because, uh, we as adults use visuals all the time, right? I mean, emojis come to mind, uh, the app's, uh, they don't just have words on them on your phone, right? They're usually little squares that have a picture associated with them. And that's how you can quickly recognize them. And those are just two examples of how of, of in your car, you know, when the check engine light comes on, there's the visual there, you know, uh, and, and we could go on and on with examples. But those are examples that happen to people in real life as adults. We rely on visuals. So why wouldn't we provide those to students as well?
1: Exactly. I love it. Yes. We all love visual supports. Oftentimes, like with the clinicians that work for me, I'll say like, send me some visual support. <laughs> They're like trying to tell me something or, you know, whatever. And it means like, send me a video or an email or like something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love it. I love the visual supports. And just to, to kind of reiterate this last point, children will do what's easiest for them. So the moment verbal communication becomes easier than using a device is the moment they'll do it every single time. And so we don't need to worry about, oh, a child will, you know, get too lazy on the device, which is another video I did actually. I can't stand people who call kids lazy, who are having a hard time communicating. Children will choose the path of least resistance every time. So we don't need to worry about, you know, whether or not if one's easier than the other, that's what they'll choose, at least in my experience.
0: Heck, me too, right? I mean, most people take the path of least resistance, you know, Uh, and so why wouldn't students do that as well? And as soon as verbal becomes less difficult, they'll do it, they'll use it.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's vocabulary specific. Like, I have kids who sometimes they'll say yes and no verbally, but they'll say other things on their device and vice versa, depending on the day and all those things. So,
0: Rachel, I think that's something I've learned over the years, especially here by doing the podcast. One of the interviews that comes to mind is Alyssa Hillary Zisk. And what they were saying during that interview was how sometimes they use the AAC and sometimes they use their voice. And it depends on the moment that works best for them in that moment, in the situation. So even as an adult, sometimes you it would not mean that you would just use one or the other, right? It's- just a huge takeaway from that interview was that we all use AAC.
1: Could not agree more. I think you're exactly right. And I think that's that's actually something that I cite when I talk to families is we have adult AAC users who are part-time AAC users, meaning sometimes they use verbal communication and sometimes they use AAC. So I think that's something that we can use to guide our practice for sure.
0: Totally. And I think it removes some of those uh, the, the fear factor that might exist for parents.
1: Absolutely. So Chris, let's talk about today's interview. I'm really excited. Like (laughs) so excited. Who are we having on today? Today is one
0: that we've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. Uh, This is sort of a legend in the field of AAC. This is Gail Van Tatenhove, who I've known for for many years, and I just recently uh, reached out to her and said, Gail, how about you come on the podcast? I spent some time with her at ATIA, and I've seen her in in Pittsburgh, and uh, she's a fantastic person a wealth of information, so many resources, has helped so many people over the years. And uh, she was really gracious and uh, willing to come on and and talk about something we don't talk about all that often on this podcast because you and I are so student-focused. But because this is a podcast all about AAC and across the lifespan, we wanted to to talk to Gail. She does work with a lot of adults and uh, thinking about uh, caregiving uh, across the lifespan, including end of life.
1: That's how we know our podcast has made it, Chris. We have Gail on. That's like the litmus <laughs> test. Like, we've made it, Chris. We've done it. Talking with Jack has done it.
0: <laughs> we, we accomplished that goal. We made it there. Oh, uh, it's, all, it. it's all downhill from here. Rachel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so excited that she was able to come on and talk with us. And I'm really pumped because this is an area that we don't talk about enough. And it's an area that I definitely think is important because our – children AAC users turn into adult AAC users. And so it's really wonderful to have the insight and perspective about what adults who use AAC, what kinds of, you know, things that we need to work on with them and prepare them for and using AAC in the community, not just in a therapy room and all these things I'm really excited to, to talk with, with Gail about.
0: Yeah, so at ATIA, um, Gail's presentation was specifically about end of life and using AAC towards the end of someone's life uh, and uh, supporting the caregivers and the role that the SLP plays in that dynamic. Um, and it was really moving and emotional, and, and, and got a, she's like, I'm closing out this presentation and they know I'm gonna make everybody cry, and she certainly did. Um, and I was like, well, we gotta get her on and talk about this. Because like you said, um, you and I have used this phrase, design with the end in mind, and that's often thinking about a, a, a kid being an adult, but adults eventually get older, and then much older, uh, and then pass. And that, if we're caregivers all the way through, how do we support the caregivers all the way through? If we're therapists thinking all the way through, how do we do that? And Gail has some uh, excellent, amazing strategies to share.
1: Love it. So if you guys haven't already, please join our Facebook group. Lots of amazing conversations are happening in there. Any updates that we have, they go right into the Facebook group. Just simply search Talking With Tech and our group will pop up and we would love to have you. Hey, Rachel, one last thing. We haven't done this in a while. How about we read
0: one of the most recent listener reviews? And uh, in the past, we've read some of those reviews
1: out, out loud here
0: on the podcast, recorded them.
1: So we do have a review from grateful grad student, Karen. She says, how did I just now learn about this podcast? I've been listening to the episodes for over a week now, and I love everything I'm hearing. I'm currently a grad student with a dual interest in communicative disorders and assistive technology. I feel that AAC and AT have incredible potential to improve the lives of so many with communication disorders. But from my experience, many SLPs do not seem confident in their understanding of how best to incorporate these tools into their therapy. I'm currently enrolled in the AAC course for my graduate program, and I'm disappointed to say that it's outdated and disorganized. If this were the only exposure I'd had to AAC, I too would feel ill-equipped to assess and treat using AAC. I am so, so, so grateful for the current access to resources such as this for students like myself who are motivated to self-educate, but who can't necessarily afford to attend CEU events. Thank you so much.
0: That's why we do it, Rachel, right? Oh, that's so great. Thank you, Karen, for leaving that review. We're making Uh, a
1: difference.
0: We are. We totally are. So without further ado, let's check out our interview with Gail Van Tatenhove. Welcome to Talking with Tech, and today we are here with Gail Van Tatenhove. How's it going, Gail?
2: Very well, Chris. Thank you.
0: So since the day we started this podcast, we made a list of people that we'd like to have to interview on the podcast, and at the very top of that list was Gail Van Tatenhove. So today we get to do it. We get to chat with you. Thanks for coming on.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very honored to be here with you this afternoon.
0: So, Gail, um, let's talk about uh, you a little bit for, just in case there's anyone listening who doesn't know what you do or, or, or who you are, can you give us a little background? Where do you work? What do you do? And maybe how did you first get started in AAC? All
2: right. Well, of course, Chris, um, I am a speech pathologist, and I have a small private practice in Orlando, Florida. And on a weekly basis, I provide direct AAC services for children and adults, mostly adults with developmental disabilities who use AAC systems. And when I'm not doing that, I also work part-time for semantic compaction systems. And semantic compaction systems um, are the people who do men speak. And for them, I work on special projects. I also present at their seminar series, which they offer in Pittsburgh. And that keeps me pretty busy, but I still also will slide in and you might find me on the road somewhere doing a conference or a presentation at a school district. So I've got a nice, I think, balance between private practice, um, some consulting, and getting to do a lot of professional development.
0: Yeah, that's in fact, I think that's maybe the first time I met you was at one of the Semantic Compaction's Pittsburgh Language Learning Seminars. I could be wrong, but I have this vivid memory of us sitting around people who, if they haven't experienced that, after the seminars, what happens is uh, everyone who participates in the seminars kind of hangs out together for a while. And I remember sitting in the driveway with you just chatting, chatting about everything, AAC and ASHA and just everything.
2: Yeah, it's a great venue for people to collaborate. Build networks, um, but that's a topic probably for another podcast.
0: Now, Gail, am I right in thinking you've been doing this for exactly two years? This is your second year as a speech therapist? <laughs> yeah,
2: haven't- You're so funny, Chris. Um, well, I actually stuck my toes into the field of AAC long before it was recognized as a field of practice for speech-language pathologists. Um, I started out as an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire, in 1976 um, and I'm not sure between you Chris and Rachel which one of you might not have been born yet in 1976.
1: I wasn't born um, yet. I wasn't
2: born yet. Yeah <laughs> well <two> years. <laughs> yeah. so I was I was graduating in 76 and as an undergraduate I was so fortunate that my practicum experience was at a self-contained school for children with multiple disabilities And At the time my supervising therapist, who I still exchange Christmas cards with every year, taught me how to make manual communication boards for those students who had limited speech. And from that really extraordinary initial experience, I took my first job in 1977 and I was working in Iowa at a school that was part of a large educational cooperative. They had both a day program Um, So kids got bused in for the day program, as well as a residential program um, where kids lived in various group homes. And they pulled students from five counties as well as, a half a dozen other states. So the majority of my caseload at that time were kids who needed AAC systems. And, you know, when I started out, there wasn't much out there. Um, It was in those early years when I was in Iowa that devices started becoming commercially available. Otherwise, your only option was to make something. Um, You had to make it out of cardboard, you made it out of PVC pipe, you got to know the handyman at the school who would make you a lap tray. Um, It really was kind of pre-field, battlefield AAC intervention. But from there, Um, In 1982, I took a job in Orlando, Florida. I got out of the cold and the snow of Iowa, and I went down to Florida to join a statewide AAC assessment team. And they were just starting this team. They were looking for people. And for six years, my entire focus was on assessing school-age kids for AAC systems. And then my specific job after doing the assessment was to travel to the local school district to help those teams implement our recommendations and there were times i read what we had recommended for a kid and thought what were we thinking um you know in this situation you know this isn't going to work so it really was an opportunity to see where theory and assessment and you know pulling a kid away from their home district for one day doing a massive download of assessment protocols and then taking it back to the home district and seeing what was and was not going to work. So I thought that was a a fabulous opportunity and then in 1988 um, I got an opportunity to start consulting with semantic compaction systems and had a little private practice running on the side and that's what I have done ever since.
0: Yeah, that is an amazing story there of the history of of and really, you know, I think back to uh, AAC and where it started. Did you use like bliss symbols and things like that?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I when I started at that school in Iowa, my little office they gave me. Now it was a great space. I had a lot of space, but AAC didn't exist, and they gave me what they thought a speech pathologist needed because I was also the first speech pathologist in this building. So I had a mirror. A Peabody picture vocabulary test and office supplies um, and there were no there wasn't board maker there were no symbol sets you could commercially buy mm-hmm. so I had a local artist draw me some pictures on a special kind of paper and I took it to the office to a mimeograph machine and ran them off um, or you could buy bliss symbols And so I did get into Bliss Symbols and I got trained in Bliss Symbols and they were my first introduction to really established AAC practice. I was very lucky to be able to get up to Toronto, meet Shirley McNaughton, see what they were doing up there at the Bliss Symbol Communication Institute. Um, And so I consider her one of my early mentors and helping me figure out how this AAC thing actually worked.
0: Yeah, which which I think that's exactly what we're still trying to do. There's always still new new insights to to be had, right? Would you? Yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the it's a a great challenge, especially for someone a little bit older than me, not to get complacent thinking I've seen it, you know, I've done it. You've seen one AAC kid, you've seen them all. No, it's, every kid is a complete new challenge, no matter. I've got 35, 40 years, but it, it is a challenge because kids with challenges or physical disabilities and non-speaking kids are challenging.
1: Gail, I have a question for you just with your breadth of experience. How has the AAC field evolved over time? I mean, I feel like you, you were right there from the very beginning. How has it evolved both in you know, beneficial ways and also you know, potentially negative ways? Have you, what, what has, what's your, your take on you know, the evolution?
2: Um, It's an excellent question, Rachel, because some of the some things are constant and some things have changed so much. Obviously, technology has just such a radical change. And yet what's never changed is language. You know, it's still the same, the same challenges we have on teaching kids. Um, All aspects of language production, from learning vocabulary, combining those words together, putting word endings on it, helping them have a conversation, that's not changed. So I think there are a lot of constants. Um, What's evolved significantly, of course, is the networking, the information opportunities that are out there. Whether you're listening to this podcast or you're taking a course online through some sort of learning management system, the opportunities to learn and grow. But on on the reverse side, I would say one of the things that I get kind of concerned about is the lack of innovation sometimes. People say, okay, I got a kid who needs an AAC system. They look through a catalog. They look through a list of apps. They look through whatever they can buy, and that isn't how any of us started out. We started out looking at the kid and thinking, what's the end game here? What do we have to make today to get this kid to the end game? Um, and and people don't do that. And when I see on social media, they're like, well, which app do you think would be the best for this kid after you've given me five sentences about this kid? yeah, scar- It scares me. It's yeah. Sc-
0: you know what Gail, I think of that're you're, you're speaking there about the selection process, but I think it also applies to implementation. I think a lot of people are looking for a script to follow well, okay, if I follow this these set of things, if I do this if I read this script, this curriculum, then boom they'll they'll get language yeah, yeah. and I think it's more about like having fun and, and like you said and, and designing an experience that people want to be in
2: yeah, I mean because obviously, when I started out, there was no AAC journal. ASHA didn't recognize what we were doing. There was no SIG-12 perspectives. We were making up procedures as we were going along. And I still think there is a place for that kind of innovation. We must have research that drives what we're doing. We must have evidence-based practice. But many times the evidence-based and the research follows the innovation of something people have tried. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I believe in the balance between innovate, be creative, and take what we know about good practice
1: and apply it to our our kids. And I I also also think to that point, you know, the, the apps out there now and the systems, they're so easy to just throw a template on and, you know, hit the ground running. And I think what you're speaking to is you know, it still hasn't changed. We have a child sitting in front of us and we need to customize our approach, um, both with our vocabulary and, you know, whatever we're using that's motivating to a child. Um, so I think that process, you know, because app developers have made it so simple for clinicians, it's easy to kind of go on autopilot and just say like, okay, you know, assistive wear or proloquo, you know, progressive language one, like that's where we start. Um, and I think it's just, you know, good clinicians are the ones who really like talk to families and teachers and really figure out what is driving this student's motivation and then customize a vocabulary approach according to that
2: absolutely absolutely i completely agree if this was a visual what is that what do you call a podcast where you can see each other (laughs) a (laughs) A a, a vlog a vlog you see my head (laughs) nodding rapidly to everything you're saying rachel um so gail just
0: uh, along those lines So in the history here, of since you have this great perspective of of history of where AAC came from, uh, would it be fair to say that another big concept that uh, everyone talks about now and is just sort of standard is, since we talked about vocabulary, is core vocabulary? I mean, I would imagine back in the 70s, that's not what was being talked about. Am I right or wrong? Or what's your thought?
2: Well, well, yes and no, Chris. Um, Actually, in the 70s, it was all core vocabulary. Okay. It really was because we were very strongly following a normal developmental model, and all of I am a I wouldn't say I'm a pack rat, but I do have probably a dozen big storage boxes that have some of my original manual communication boards in yet because can't throw them away, and they got the pronouns on the prepositions, the core verbs, all of those early bliss symbol things. That was all core. But at that time, our populations in our field of people that we're serving has shifted. At that school when I went to Iowa, the majority of kids there had cerebral palsy. If I recall right, I had two, maybe three kids on my caseload who had autism spectrum disorders. Now, I dare say you walk into a building of 100 kids today with significant disabilities, those numbers have shifted. Yes. Um, And, you know, that's a discussion for another time. But at that time, we just did what we did with speaking kids. We gave them core vocabulary. And it was mostly in the 80s uh, with the introduction of more public laws that were bringing more kids into the schools. More devices started coming out that we started adopting sentence based communication topic-based communication boards. Those all came through the mid to late 80s. And then one of my other significant mentors in my life would be Mr. Bruce Baker, looked at our field from the outside, looked at our field from the perspective of a linguist and said, "Eh, that's not how language really works, girls and boys. Um, And he brought us back around to core vocabulary. But I have to say, when I started out, My early professors at the University of Wisconsin, we didn't call it core vocabulary, but it was all single word core vocabulary that they made us put on communication boards.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense, right? You wouldn't call it core vocabulary. You just call it the way you do it. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what we did in seventy six. Yeah, seventy seven. It
0: wasn't until other methodologies came about that it had to bring, uh, bring it back to light and actually give it a name, yeah. give it uh, something that you have to talk about yeah. as this thing.
2: Yeah, and it was probably very much driven by um, voice output communication devices. Sure, because even Bruce Baker, in when I first met him in the mid eighties, thought if you gave a person with a voice output device fifty good pre-stored sentences that should take care of it. And we quickly realized no 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 because you would see kids harvesting a word out of a sentence. I I have a memory of a kid saying to me a pre-stored sentence that he had in his device was I'm going to go visit dad this weekend. And I asked him is that what she, is that the sentence you wanted to say? Yes. Did you want that sentence exactly? And he said no. I was like, well now I'm confused. Until yeah. I whittled it down to did you want a word out of that sentence? Yes. Which word did you want? Weekend. All right. Did you want the word weekend? No. Okay. Did you want part of the word weekend? All right. You wanted week. Uh uh-uh. uh. Did you want end? Uh uh. Wait. Did you want part of a part of a word? Oh, you wanted we. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, yikes. You know, it's like time to take this kid off of pre stored sentences. He wants to be generative with single words. Yes. yes. Wow. I love that. I love so that I, story. I've, I've never, gone, I've never t- gotten too far off track of core vocabulary.
0: So, Gail, let me ask you this. So kids, we've been talking about kids here now, but kids eventually grow up and they become adults. And so I, you said that you work with uh, adult users as well, right? And adults with uh, intellectual disabilities. Is that right? Correct. And I know that you did a presentation at ATIA about that. The, the relationship between aging and AAC. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I'd love to. It's one of the things I just really love talking about today. You know, a lot of these adults that I'm supporting now, I actually picked them up when they were kids, uh, but we've aged together. Um, and so I'm now in that season of life where I'm spending the majority of my time working with adults, with intellectual or developmental disabilities who are aging. And I'm talking that range of somewhere between mid 40s um, and the oldest person I've just, I picked up a while ago, I'm not seeing him anymore because he's passed on, was 72. Mm. So you've got that range there. Um, and we, we often laugh because I'm aging, I'm, at the, I'm 65, I'm, I'm not shy to tell people my age. Um, and we feel like we're going through this journey together and you know these adults are living long lives in the adult world they're going to spend more time in a group home or living at home with their parents as an adult than they ever spend in a school Mm -hmm. you know the majority of their life is going to be spent as an adult Mm -hmm. and yet the majority of what's written in our in our literature um and what's presented at conferences is about services for children now that's i'm not taking away of the value of providing good services for children but we really don't spend a lot of time looking at AAC intervention for adults, particularly adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are aging. And they're facing the same age-related issues like health issues that I'm facing. So that's what I tried to share some of that at ATIA. I think the thing that has struck me as one of the really important things I'm doing with my adults is helping them deal with the aging, their aging, as well as the aging of their parents. You know, they have in their aging process the same health issues as anybody who's getting older. But unfortunately, they're a very vulnerable and underserved population medically with many healthcare disparities. They do not get the same healthcare treatment that I get when I go to my doctor. And they're gonna have issues with their joints and with their muscles, like arthritis. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I can tell you some days, I don't want to use my hands so much. Mm-hmm. And if they've been using their hands for accessing a device, they're going to have pain, and they're going to have repetitive motion injuries. And so that's some of their challenges. And just and don't even get me started on how your eyes and your hearing starts changing as you age. And my adults with AC systems, They're they're having issues with eye strain using their devices, um, especially some of the eye gazers. And they're having to increase the volume of their speech output in order to hear it. And everybody's saying, turn that down, turn that down. You're yelling. And it's like, but they can't hear it otherwise, uh, especially when they're in a noisy environment. So I want your listeners to appreciate that whatever challenges – I'm facing at the age of 65, or your listeners' parents or grandparents are facing, an adult using an AAC system is going to face the same things. And you know, I'm not suggesting to anybody that my role as the speech pathologist is to diagnose anything or to provide any treatment of these physical and sensory challenges. But I do see it as my role to provide the supports they need in order to talk to their healthcare providers and advocate for themselves when possible. That includes you know things like programming sentences into their device for talking with their doctors. Again, I love core vocabulary, but I also recognize you're gonna go talk to a doctor. Mm-hmm. Doctors are gonna give you minutes at the most to talk to him or her what your healthcare issues are. And I will put pre-stored sentences in there like, after I'm done eating, everything in my chest hurts. You know, that's acid reflux mm-hmm. um, or hiatal hernias. Or I feel like I have to pee all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or for one young woman who was in her 50s, I feel like I want to punch everybody all the time. You know, <laughs> she, she was going through the change. Um, and, and I want them to have things like, tell me what this medicine is supposed to do for me tell me the side effects of this medicine. So I put those things in there so they can be efficient in talking to their doctor. Even if they don't always understand the information the doctor gives them, Mm -hmm. the doctor will treat them very differently and will provide a longer visit, better healthcare if they see them as a competent patient. I mean, then hopefully who's ever there with that person Uh, which is often just a person maybe from their group home who drove them there, who doesn't see their role as asking the questions. They're just providing transportation and attendant care services. At least that person can be there listening and maybe recording the doctor's responses.
0: This makes a lot of sense to me. As someone who is trying to project into the future and, and try and put myself in those shoes, what you're describing makes sense is that understanding what people are trying to communicate with complete sentences would maybe make it a lot faster for me as someone who wants to provide care to be able to better serve them
2: yeah and you know many of the in fact i was just talking with a mom today she said oh i was so excited my son went in to see his hematologist Um, he's got a lot of issues with low iron and he had some pre stored sentences but then the doctor mentioned well is there anything else and he built something sentence word by word by word and the doctor was absolutely blown away that he was understanding and he could build something. It wasn't an elegant sentence, but it was five or six words. And the doctor understood that he really was personally advocating for his health care.
1: That's amazing. I love that. And I think that what you're speaking to is something that we can all use to inform our practice. Um, I think even starting with very young children, we can start teaching them about their bodies and what hurts and language like this so that they're able one day to self-advocate and even understand how to use language. And that's something that, you know, a lot of the parents that come to see me, that's the biggest thing that I hear from moms is like, I just want to know when he doesn't feel good. I just want to know when he has a headache, you know, because a lot of times these parents don't know. And so I think that it takes a long time, you know, to build One, the awareness in our bodies, right? I feel like that's something that you know evolves even over time. Myself as an adult, I feel like I'm still kind of like building that awareness. Uh, But then, of course, attaching language to that and understanding the language in, in, in a way so that you're able to use that language to advocate for yourself. And we've talked a lot about this on the podcast as far as individual complex communication needs being the most vulnerable for abuse. And it's not an easy thing to talk about, but I think as clinicians, it can really help Um, you know, starting from a very early age and just being cognizant of, you know, I'm starting with a five-year-old, but eventually that five-year-old is going to be a 35-year-old, a Um, 45-year-old. So just thinking through that lens across the age spectrum, I think is really, really valuable.
2: Yeah. You know, and even for those um, adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities who really can't fully understand what's going on with them, one of the, I think, really important things that we can do that doesn't depend on, competency of the augmented communicator is monitor things that we see are changing in their communication, which could potentially be signaling physical or health issues. For example, I'm going to give you a a couple examples. There's a woman in her 50s. I'll call her Rachel. I track her rate of communication as well as her mean length of utterance in morphine and morphemes in order to monitor her motor skill changes. And she's using direct selection with her hand, but because she's in increasingly pain from arthritis and joint breakdown, she's getting slower and slower and slower in her rate of communication and you know, the amount of time that she actually is talking in a day. I mean, you could look at that and say, well, why isn't she talking so much? Are you not giving her the device? So, you know, what's the change with the communication partner? And it really is boiling down to, she says, it hurts too much. And she's choosing to be quiet rather than talk. So she and I and the family have talked extensively about shifting her access method. She's trialing eye gaze. And you know, she's like, hey, you know, I, for 50 years, I've used my hand. Um, and she's having to figure out, does she want to go with her eyes and, She's saying yes, because you know she can get back up to a uh, longer utterances and feeling more energetic. Um, we just have to make sure her eyes aren't going on or two, uh, during this process, which is what the problem I'm having with this other guy who's my same age. Ben and I are like, our birthdays are within one day of each other. And when I first started realizing he's making so many mistakes with his device. At the time I had, you know, pretty decent glasses I took them off my face put them on Ben's face he's like whoa that's better <laughs> you know? And because uh, you know he had decreasing vision you know things were blurry and when it's blurry you got a headache and he wasn't communicating so it we took a little advocating the boy needs bifocals um, and I keep you know monitoring him as well um, and with all my clients all these adults, you know, with the one that was, you know, aging significantly and his mother had passed away, I I actually monitor what they're saying to see if I see them talking about depression or mm-hmm. pain or anxiety. And of course, you know, you get the permission for, for you to look at their language samples if you're using a device with automated data logging. And I look at it for anything that I consider markers for depression. And it's not a pleasant thing when you see somebody saying, I don't think I want to go on. Mm. You know, those are hard things to see, but you better catch that now and go talk to the family and, you know, or somebody think, I don't want to get out of bed anymore. You know, you want to be able to um, address that in a healthy way.
0: So, Gail, let me ask you, having worked with People who are moving towards the end of life—is there does their language change at all? Is there certain things they want to talk about more than less, from your perspective?
2: I would say, well, for so many of them, their end of life will come probably more unexpectedly than yours or mine will. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents passed at the age of eighty-eight. I mean, I watched a progression for ten years, and we know from a literature on typically aging adults, your interest of in what you want to talk about does start changing. But so many of our guys might catch pneumonia mm. and something will take them at, you know, 50 um, or they'll pick up an infection of some kind or sepsis. That's, you know, that's unfortunately um, the case many times. But I would say generally across the board, all of my adults really want to tell life stories. Mm hmm. They want to talk about when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I remember this. And when I was a kid, my sister or brother did this. They really want to talk about their life stories. They're reminiscing.
0: Okay. Are there any strategies you help through the families to help them do that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Because you know, we, we our literature does suggest to us that the narrative skills of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities aren't always very refined. So, I mean, I went back to look at a July 2009 article by Dr. Sheila Stewart, um, and she, her article was called Understanding the Storytelling of Older Adults for AAC System Design. And, you know, she, she talked about in that article, the great benefit of telling your story allows you to reflect on your life, which leads to acceptance of increasingly diminished capacity. So when I'm working with this one gentleman, he used to walk, can't walk anymore. He used to use, you know, his hand. He's losing the use of his hand. You know, he used to eat by mouth. He doesn't eat by mouth anymore. He used to pee like every guy standing by a toilet. Now he's on a a catheter. You know, as his life's gone down, he's increasingly telling his stories about when he was younger and what fun things they do um, and so I've, I've made that a defined part of my intervention with a lot of the adults and I've adopted a kind of an eight step process that I call the memory of the month um, and step one all involves is let's come up with an idea for a story on anyway, most months have a holiday in them um, and if you don't have a holiday you know everybody's going back to school right about now. And so we come up with something. Actually, this week, when I brought up the issue of, you know, what should we talk about this month? Because we had Hurricane Dorian off our coast. They all were thinking about, they had memories of, because they're all Floridians, of a hurricane that they remember from a kid or bad storms or, you know, whether it's football season. Uh, But we always come up with something, a story of the month. Because it's generally going to take us about a month to get this story put together. Because mm-hmm. I'll see most of my adults one to two hours a week. Uh, so once we have our general idea for our story, then I just spend as much time as I can to give them whatever inf- information they can actually give me independently. You know, just tell me the best story we can. Um, and that often requires me to do what I call my step three, which is a guided interview, because they're going to leave out who they were with or where this happened or, you know, they're going to not always have given me all those bits and pieces. So I start to try to get that information. And Boy, and some of the stuff you hear, you think this can't possibly be right. This This can't possibly be right. I'm misunderstanding here. So that's what I get to step four, contact a family member. Because I am going to work under the assumption that it is right. It's far-fetched as it sounds, families have weird stories. You know, weird things happen. Chris, I follow you on Facebook. Your family stories can be wild. Um,
0: <laughs> Don't believe so any of them, Gail.
2: <laughs> I believe them all, Chris. You know, so once I've got that information kind of confirmed, and I fill in the gaps. Then together we, we work on like authoring it, like if we were actually gonna write this now. First you narrated it, now we're gonna clean it up because we want to have a topic sentence, we want a beginning, a middle, an end, so that we pull in all that stuff of what it takes to do story templating. You know, probably get into about 10 sentences and then I put that story in their communication device. Again, I love core vocabulary, but when you tell a story and you want people to appreciate your story, I'll program that in in a notebook or whatever format your device allows you to have a pre-stored sentence. For folks who don't have uh, fancy voice output devices, maybe it's in a Big Mac switch, or maybe it's in a step-by-step or some other digital format. Well, in step seven, step seven is about telling the story to other people. I mean, this story isn't just for my ears. Um, I want them to be able to tell that story to other people, which then springboards into step eight, which is having a conversation about the life event related in the story. Uh, I've discovered over and over, especially in these group homes and some of these day programs, our folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities aren't always appreciated for the, the life experiences they have had. Mm -hmm. these folks see them in that little window of being an adult um, and they have forgotten that these came out of vibrant homes that had a lot of fun and that have siblings which they've never met half those people and maybe never will meet some of those people but I want to give you an example because this is this I think is a nice example of sometimes how unpredictable these stories can become so I had said I'm gonna call this guy David David's in his mid 50s um, and I asked him to tell me something that happened to him during the summer because this was August tell me something you remember from this summer um, And he told me a story that contained a mixture of bits and pieces Which I later discovered were from several different life events. So he said the following call thing on the wall now That's a definition. That's not a sentence call thing on the wall is an intercom So his bedroom had an intercom so he says call thing on the wall Okay, tell me something else. To make noises. All right, I'm writing this down. Mattress under floor. Okay, because my job is here, I'm just just transcribing. What else? Ghost, ghost. All right, what else? Snake, like S-N-A-K-E. Snake to call mom name. A snake that called your mom's name, okay. Brenda, that's mom. Wall thing falling down, like okay. Is the intercom falling off the wall? Ghost, again, so ghost is really important here, and Angel Mindy. Now, Mindy's his sister. Like, okay. So I call her up, because she and I know each other very well. um, And I learned that, that David was doing a mashup of two events. And so if you can bear with me, I'll actually tell you what the two stories were. The first story we called Snakes. And he said, when I was about four or five years old, something very scary happened to me. I was in my crib and I heard something under my bed. We had an intercom in our house so my mom and dad could hear me in my bedroom. They heard a funny clicking sound and dad came to explore. I used my voice, eyes, and body to help dad understand what was wrong. He figured out that I was telling him that something was under my bed. Dad moved my bed and found a nest of pygmy rattlesnakes under my bed
1: oh my goodness
2: oh yeah they were pretty small but they made enough of a sound with their rattles that i knew they were under there dad got rid of them wow so so he had given me that bit about the intercom was making noises and snake and you know Uh, Anyway, so I was like, okay, now what about Mindy? What about this bit of ghost? I mean, where does ghost fall in this story? And so Mindy says, well, you know, our house was haunted when we grew up. Haunted? (laughs) Okay. Uh, She said, well, so our story became when I was growing up, we had a ghost or spirit of some kind in our house. And everyone in their family absolutely believes this. Sure. Yeah. We have lots of family stories about strange things that happened in our house. Our only explanation was a ghost. For example, once Mindy was playing on a bookcase and it was not attached to the wall, it was about to fall over and hurt Mindy. But the ghost called out my mom's name over the intercom. So that's where he had said, ghost, to call mom's name, Brenda. So over the intercom, they heard Brenda. And it wasn't David, because he can't speak anything that you could understand. And He's like, but mom got there in time to save Mindy maybe the ghost is a guardian angel oh, like wow. that's his story you know so he gets that in his device he goes and tells his friends that are part of the adult you know training program and you know everybody now starts talking about ghosts and snakes so, you know the general consensus was snakes are bad ghosts are good <laughs> um, and cool <laughs> um, you know, so we had this really interesting group chat About, you know, who believed in ghosts and who didn't believe ghosts. But you know what, and I love the most watching that, is it drew people into the life of David. And you saw other staff members who often weren't always very engaged start telling similar stories about weird things that happened in their lives. And I thought, he is contributing. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the stories we programmed in, I've cleaned them up significantly, but it just helps people. Treat him a little bit more respectfully. Oh. Um, and, you know, so I call his sisters. I call anybody I can to say, help me make sense out of this story because he's laughing like a crazy guy as he's trying to tell me this, but he really can't give me much more information.
0: You know, Gail, this, this, I'm going to tie this to my own personal story here is that um, just today I was uh, doing a presentation with a bunch of teachers and we were having the conversation about stimming on a device. So a person with oh, autism. Man. And there's this often presumption that, oh, he's just hitting random words or he's just hitting the same word over and over and over again. And this teacher told the story of how this one kid was hitting he, 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 and they thought he was stimming at first. And they realized he hit it all together. He's laughing. He's laughing. (laughs) He's laughing. laughing. That's it. And and, uh, they said, you know, it really reset our thinking that, hmm, maybe we should presume that the words that, are, that we at first we thought were stimming, maybe we shouldn't be thinking that at first. Maybe we should presume that the student is trying to communicate something, that the person is trying to communicate something, and I just haven't figured out what that interpretation is yet. Yeah. Lead with that. I mean, maybe there is some stimming behavior that we could attribute something to. I'm not discounting that. And that every case would not be stimming, but let's lead with the thought that it is. And what yeah. could it? Do. And I heard you do a strategy there that I think is something important, which is you said you're just writing things down. Like at that point, yeah. you're just writing things down to try and figure them out later.
2: Yeah, you know, and you know, David and I have gone been together for so many years. I started seeing him in 1992. You know, he had wow. just come out of the public school system. You know, he really only had had a bliss board growing up. He and I have been on. An incredible journey together it was David um, who as I was I used to uh, fly home to Wisconsin for one week every month I did that for four years in support of my parents who were aging and who eventually passed so I was I was going home and I'd come back and I some days look like death warmed over and he would look at me he always asked about my parents he always would be concerned about me, and many times he'd say, "You look bad. Go home." <laughs> like, <laughs> good advice, you know. Mm-hmm. Or he'd say, "Let's go man cave," because that place in their day program was a man cave. He said, "Let's go man cave," because there was a sofa in there. You're like, you lay like down. A, I mean, to have that kind of relationship with somebody, and now our our roles have reversed. You know, he's had some health setbacks, but mostly his father is. His father has a degenerative disease. And in the past years, his dad's lost his ability to walk. He's losing his ability to speak. And you know. And now at this point, he's wanting to figure out how can I help my dad? So last week, he was asking me, could I make a word and spelling board for his dad? And could I revitalize his old accent 1200 for his dad? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I mean, I think it's just. What I appreciate about working with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities is I I just always love their honesty. You know, he said, you look terrible. (laughs) Go home. Um, And that I think they're when you treat them with compassion, you treat them as a whole person. They're not a patient or a client that you're working with. They're a friend you're supporting. And you end up supporting the whole family because that whole family is in a transition his sister doesn't come to see him too often anymore because her sister's spending time helping dad, mm-hmm. you know, dad's the one who's going through traumatic things now. Um, and David's wanting to talk about, could I move to where other family is in North Carolina after dad passes? And he now wants to have stories about his dad added to his device. Cause he said, I want talk at remember time. What's yeah. a remember time. That's the funeral. Mm-hmm. So he wants stories in his device for dad's funeral. And he said, and I want to go visit Dirt Place, which is the oh. cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just really, um, I, I think it's important that we're there for them as a speech pathologist to help them navigate what, for all of us, as we age and as we lose our parents, is an utterly devastating, wretched time. And if we can do something to be the ear that listens to them, Helps them record their memories, um, and more and more, I'm collecting photos and recording family memories because it's what they need now as they're in this phase where they're aging and they just don't get a lot of services, mm-hmm. and their their lives are um, having going to have a lot of losses. So you know, this is what David and I are working a lot on now: remembering those happy things, getting those happy things recorded in his device not only that he can share them with others, but for those times when he's really sad. He can play them, listen to them, and it's a comfort to him.
1: I love that. And I feel like we, we connect with each other through stories. And mm-hmm. so that's exactly what you're doing you know, with these individuals that you work with. And it's just, it's so amazing to hear because I, I can't even imagine how empowered the people that you work with feel when they can finally, you know, with your help, be able to finally communicate a story that they probably see so vividly in their memory. You know, they can finally communicate that. And then not only that, but connect with other people, you know, by telling that story.
2: Yeah, because our stories are bridges to other people. and, And I find it a great privilege that I can be there for those adults that I do support and help them build that bridge.
0: So, Gail, let me ask you, what floats your boat recently? What are you passionate about? What are you thinking about? What's the next steps? What's, uh, what are you thinking about?
2: Well, you know, that's a great question. You know, my friends ask me that all the time. What are you going to do next? Or, you know, where do you, what excites you in this field? And, you know, in all honesty, I'm thinking about retiring. I, uh, I'm, I'm ready to retire. Uh, when you retire from something you've been doing since 1977, You can't walk away from something you have to walk to something Um, and right now you asked me about the basics before what's changed I want to go back to the basics and I know that's strange but what I what I'm excited about right now is exploring the opportunities that might be out there to go to developing countries as a volunteer and help establish the basics of AAC supports. And right now, off the coast of uh, Florida, there's a little country that I'm really interested in, and it's called Cuba. You know, Cuba is one of the largest Caribbean nations with 11 million people. About 400,000 have disabilities. 38% of those have an intellectual disability. I've never been able to find the statistics on the number of individuals who need AAC systems, but I'm gonna guess it's a big number. Um, so my dream is to get to Cuba and help something in opening up some knowledge base and getting some effective and affordable low-tech AAC systems there. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of just waiting right now, curious as to what doors will open for me. Um, right now, I'm planning to go to the Biennial Isaac Conference in 2020, August of 2020, in Cancun, Mexico. Um, where I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to make some connections to be able to move forward with that chapter. I mean, I know some people who have visited uh, Cuba. I know people who have done other kinds of humanitarian and mission kinds of things in Cuba. So I don't quite know what's going to connect. it, And maybe it's not Cuba, maybe it's someplace else. But I think right now, I like to go back to the basics and Bring 1977 through 1985 to some place that you know needs to get that groundwork, and then help them build on that.
0: That sounds like an. Can I? Can we come, Rachel? Please,
2: please come. You know, I might be going to the Bahamas instead to try to rebuild something. I don't know what's going to happen there, but yeah, I think that's it. Always has excited me. The basics have always excited me because you give people language. That's the basics. Technology has come, technology has gone, Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't predict what the technology will be like in the next 20 years of our field. I I can't even begin to imagine it. Uh, But language is language. language. It pretty much stays the same, and that has always been and I think will always be what floats my boat. (laughs)
1: What you're saying, Gail, really speaks to me. I have a lot of passion about the international piece, Um, and I've been to other countries. I was in Cambodia, and I worked with an organization there bringing a lot of low-tech AAC, um, some high-tech. I had some donated devices that I brought, um, and I'm actually about to head to Nepal and work with the Autism Society there. And it's just, it's you're exactly right. It's a challenge because, you know, there's so many additional layers that you have to think about with the language barriers, you know, and not having access to high tech systems. You know, I, I, I would meet it. I met a, a student when I was in Cambodia and I thought, oh man, like a high tech system would be amazing for this individual. I didn't have a high tech system. And so it's a lot of problem solving, but it's back to basics in a lot of ways. Um, And, you know, we just take for granted the fact that we, and and don't get me wrong, we definitely have parts of our country that are in need of AAC clinicians and specialists and don't have access to services. But, you know, the need abroad is just so overwhelming. Um, And so, you know, anything that we can do to help support communities that like Cambodia, for example, they just brought speech therapy to the country. I mean, it wasn't even a profession, you know, five years ago. And so it's just like to even wrap your brain around that, you know, it's just, it's so crazy. So I'm quite passionate about those things too. And I feel like with, with your AAC celebrity you could make a huge <laughs> impact, Gail.
2: Oh, sweetheart, you're never, a, you're never a, a prophet in your own hometown. <laughs> you got to go to another country to get it's that. True. It's true. <laughs>
0: Well, Gail, maybe we can have you back when you get back from Cancun and talk whatever the connections are or wherever you end up going. Uh, we'd love to hear what those stories are like because uh, the podcast, fortunate enough, is, is listened to in multiple countries. And we hope that this is a, a, an avenue for other people to take. You know, the world has never been smaller.
2: Well, I'm just so honored that you would include me in your podcast. It's, it's one of my go-tos that I love listening to. I appreciate the work that you two are doing with this and um, encourage you to just keep moving it forward. It's a great contribution to our field.
1: That means a lot coming from you, Gail. I'm so excited that you were able to come on with us. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom. I'm so excited. Thank you, Gail. All right. Thank you all. So for Talking with Tech, we will talk to you guys next week.
0: Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question,
2: what is Communication.
0: You're listening to The Exceptional Podcast Network.